And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 129. Well, we're officially on Jumanji level September. <laughs> right. I mean, we had a pandemic, killer bees. I thought it was killer hornets. Well, some fucking flying animal that pokes you and I don't want it. <laughs> Donna tried to die. And now we have a damn hurricane that hit and destroyed all of West Louisiana. I know that we have quite a few listeners who live in the Lake Charles area, which was devastated by Hurricane Laura. So please know our hearts go out to you. My sister lives there and I have a ton of friends there. So trust me, we understand the devastation and and we just hope that you all get power and water back as quickly as possible. Definitely. I feel so sorry for the kids, too, because, like, I know my nephew was about to start first grade, like, the day that they shut everything down, you know? And so it was like, oh, by the by, school's canceled, so, oh, your kid hasn't been to school in seven months because of of COVID? Well, they still aren't going to start school this year, you know? And so I can only imagine what all the parents and kids are going through over there. Utter chaos. Mm-hmm. Utter chaos. I'd have to take extra abuse bar. Well, I just wonder what else 2020 has in store for us. I don't want to know. I mean, we do have an election coming up. No matter what side you're on, you know it's going to be a shit show. You know it's not a shit show, though? What? Patreoners! Patreon is a shit show, but they're not. You're right. It's an organized shit show with... One whole segment on our... Shit. (laughs) Yeah. I.e. the bloopers. Okay. Thank you so much, Kate F. from Iowa. Madison R. from Georgia. Erica C. from Texas. Kayla B. from Texas. Oh, okay. Well, Adriana M. from Vermont. And Chelsea M. from Kentucky. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Thank y'all so much for supporting us, for signing up. We hope you enjoy all of the bonus content. And if you're listening and you want an episode shout out, go on over to patreon.com forward slash the APC podcast. I do have one thing I want to say. I found my new obsession on Netflix. It's called Cobra Kai. Oh my God. It's two seasons because I knew that had come out, but I didn't know where it was. So it was just like, eh, I'll find it later. Netflix is my best friend. Sorry, Carrie, but they picked it up. I cannot wait till next year for the third season. I'm already hooked. So if you like The Karate Kid like I do, watch it. It's cheesy, but it's so good. Well, I'm still on Dexter. (laughs) But I feel like I'm making it through pretty fast. Yeah, you are. I only have five episodes left of the whole series. Ooh. I know. Okay, we need to jump right in because this is a big story, and I hope, please, that I do it justice because I feel like this case is New Zealand's version of Michael Peterson meets Stephen Avery. Well, damn, is there a Netflix documentary about it? Because I feel like there should be. No, but there is an entire podcast, like 10 or 11 episode podcast about it. So I please, I'm not even going to probably scratch the surface of all the things that could go into this case. Like picture like an hour long ID special on like a two season Netflix series, you know, like it's, I'm never going to cover it all, 
but I'll tell you the name of the podcast in a second because I don't want to give it away. And shout out to Sarah M. in the Facebook group because she is the one that recommended this case to me. And I'm so freaking glad she did. Awesome. Unless I hate it and then shame on you. You're going to hate, love it, love, hate it, (laughs) hate, love. It's one of those. (laughs) Hate to love it, love to hate it. (laughs) Uh Okay. All right. Picture it. Dunedin, New Zealand. There's a family there called the Bain family. And they're the bane of everyone's existence. Well, (laughs) okay. The father, his name is Robin, and the mother is Margaret. They have four kids, David, Arwa, Lynette, and Stephen. Sorry if I pronounced any of that wrong. I listened to so many podcasts, and they would say it, and I go, is that what they just said? I need subtitles, but subtitles don't help, because I know how it's spelled. (laughs) Robin and Margaret were nothing alike, but somehow they found love together, and they got married in 1969. They were very involved in the church, and even in 1974, they went to Papua New Guinea, where Robin worked as a missionary teacher. But here's the thing. While they were in Papua New Guinea, Margaret starts taking a little different, not religious path, but religious path. She gets really into like spi- this, like spiritualism and thinking that Satan is involved with everything and almost like that kind of cultish mentality of keep my family close away from the outside that has Satan involved. She started practicing a lot of self-hypnosis, meditation, and she really believed the devil was in everything. She even had diaries where she would talk about like the kids' behaviors or just literally mundane things that clearly the devil was part of and like demons and stuff that she called one of them she called bell shortened um i can't remember what demon it was i suck but eventually the family moved to dunedin and they bought this house and it was kind of a dilapidated house this is where the like new zealand version of the stephen avery family comes in robin was a bit of a hoarder and the house was just nasty like They just had shit everywhere. And at this point in Robin and Margaret's relationship, it was very strained. Robin was working at a school that was at least an hour away. And so he would spend the weeknights in his van at the school. And then he would come home and he would stay in a camper or a caravan that was just on the property. Initially, Margaret stayed in the caravan slash camper, but eventually they switched and she stayed in the house with the kids and he moved out there. But only three of the kids lived with them. Lynette is the child that didn't live at home. David, who's the oldest son, he was working towards a music career. He really wanted to be an opera singer, but he had a part-time job delivering newspapers The morning of June 20th, 1994, started like every other morning. David wakes up, starts his morning routine to deliver the newspapers. He always had like a game with himself to see if he could beat his delivery time. I mean, the original beat the GPS, right? So he knew that he got home from delivering the papers 
at 6.42. At 7.09 a.m., David calls 111, which is the emergency. It's our 911. And he says, they're all dead. They're all dead. Oh, my gosh. All five of his family members, Robin, his father, who was 58, Margaret, his mother, who was 50, Arwa, who was 19, Lynette, 18, and Stephen, 14, are all found dead. When police get to the scene, they see that Stephen put up a fight, and while the rest of the family was shot, Stephen was strangled with his own t-shirt and shot. Oh my gosh. Police found a message typed on the computer and it said, Sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. Four days later, David is charged with the murders. I'm already saying it wasn't him because he was out delivering the paper. God! Let's start first with the prosecution's theories. I got a lot of this from crime.co.nz. All right, so they believe David wakes up at about 5, gets dressed, and goes and pulls out his twenty two caliber rifle. There is a trigger guard on the rifle that David is the only person that has the key for. They say that David put a silencer on the gun and loads a 10-round magazine. He had a pair of white gloves in his drawer that he put on, and he wears his mother's glasses while he's doing the killings because his is being repaired. So his mom and him had a very similar prescription. And, you know, they just would like interchange glasses all the time. And so since his, again, like I said, were being repaired, he was wearing hers a great deal of the time. It's believed that first he goes into the study where Lynette is sleeping, because remember, she doesn't live at the house anymore. And he shoots her twice in the head while she's sleeping. They believe that then he goes to his mother's room and shoots her in the forehead. Mm. Next, he goes to Stephen's room. When he points the gun at Stephen's head, they believe Stephen wakes up and pushes the gun away as it goes off. Then the two begin to fight Stephen is bleeding from his head where he like pushed the gun away, but it still grazed his head. And David takes Stephen's t-shirt, wraps it around his throat, and starts to strangle him. And once he gets him down and incapacitated, he kills him with a bullet to the head. Well, remember how I said that David had on his mother's glasses? Police found the left lens in Stephen's room. So that's going to come up later. But they believe that during the struggle, that's when the glasses fly off of David's face and the lens pops out. So he puts the glasses back on, but he's still missing the lens. He can't find it. He goes downstairs to Arwa, his other sister's room, and she is kneeling down when David comes in the room because she heard what was going on and was praying. Oh my gosh, break my heart. He shoots her, but he misses because, hello, one glasses lens, and then shoots at her again and hits her in the head, killing her. They believe he goes back upstairs because he hears Lynette gurgling. This will come up later. And he shoots her again in the head. At this point, the prosecution alleges that David takes all the clothing that he's wearing covered in blood and puts it in the washing machine and turns it on. 
Well, remember that David's father, Robin, is sleeping in the camper out out in the yard. His father's daily routine was to, you know, wake up, come inside, get his coffee. I think he even had to use the bathroom in the house because really they, you know, as much as their relationship was strained, he did spend a lot of time with them, you know, during the day in the house and would take the kids to school, all the things, but slept out in the camper. So police believe that from there, after David washes the clothes that he was wearing, he goes out on his regular newspaper routine. And when he comes back home, he turns the computer on to type the message intended to be what appeared to be a suicide note from his father. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I see. I was thinking it was like someone totally random. Mm-mm. God, I'm an idiot. So David, knowing his father's routine, waits for him to come in. One of the things that his father always did when he came into the house was he would kneel and say his like morning prayers. While his father was kneeling, David shoots him in the head and then lays the rifle beside his body, like with the magazine, like standing up next to it. So hold on. They're saying that he washed the clothes that he killed everyone else in, mm-hmm. wore them out no. to the thing? No. Okay. Change clothes. Okay. Okay. So, killed everybody but his dad, washed his clothes, went on his paper route, waited for his dad, like, behind a curtain, shot his dad, so all the, like, splatter went on the curtain, not on him, and then he calls 111. Well, the other option, if David didn't kill his family, is that it was a murder-suicide and Robin killed his family and then wrote the suicide note on the computer saying that David was the only one that deserved to survive and then he turned the rifle on himself and killed himself. There's some like behind-the-scenes stuff with the family that makes people really believe that it really was Robin. David had a kind of a special bond with his mother she was very controlling and again with the whole believe in satan was involved with things like he just kind of was a part of her thinking with that and would do what she wanted him to do and you know he let her control his life so he was just much closer to them than his other siblings conversely lynette was not in a good place with her parents. She wasn't living at home, like I said before, for the 18th time. It was actually rumored that she was working as a sex worker and living with her pimp. But there's more to the story with Lynette. Lynette had disclosed to four different people at very different times that her father and her had an incestuous relationship for years and that she couldn't take it anymore, and that she was actually going home that weekend to kind of hash some stuff out. Wow. So, David's supporters are like, that's a huge fucking motive. Yeah. There were some kind of botches, I guess you could say, in with the investigation. As with anything, look, when you have a case that is this huge, you can go through it with a fine-tooth comb, and you are going to always find errors. It, no matter what people do, you're going to find errors. 
Well, this case was no different. The clothes that were in the wash machine, they found traces of blood on the clothes and in the drain. So the clothes that David washed when he got home from his paper route, allegedly, because that's what he said. Sorry, let me back up a little bit. David said he got home from his paper route, went to take a shower, washed his clothes, went up, took a shower, came back from his shower, and that's when he saw the, the carnage of his family. I was just trying to picture where his dad was. Yeah, it's like in a, it's the, the, the house is weird. Yeah. It's like two levels, but like not and it's like it's it's very weird it's not like how how the first couple of things did it it was like it was almost like he was right by the door and so i was like how did you not see him yeah but he's not he's like in a room like with a i I don't know the family the house is a fucking clusterfuck so the washing machine had blood in it but the blood stains that were on robin's clothes were not analyzed so could some of that blood be from his wife or his kids we don't know is it all his blood we don't know so the blood stains on his clothes don't prove david's innocence or guilt the other thing is the gunshot residue robin's hands were not tested for gunshot residue until five hours after the police get there now gunshot residue does diminish over time But I have a hard time with gunshot residue or or GSR because we've heard in some, I feel like, more recent cases where in certain cases, people would have gunshot residue on their hands just from touching a body. You know, all the things. And so it's almost like it's not very conclusive. Yeah. It's not an exact science. The other thing, though, is not only did they not test his hands until five hours later, they didn't test them on the scene. They tested them in the morgue. So what usually happens is, in cases like this, when they take the body to the morgue, they put the hands and all in bags Mm. so that whatever comes off the hands comes off in the bag. His hands were not bagged. So there could have been gunshot residue lost in transit. It could have picked it up in transit. Like there's no, you can't, his hands weren't protected. Remember whenever I said that So the rifle that was used, David was the only person that had a key to the trigger lock. Yeah. Well, in Robin's camper, they found 20 empty cartridge shells. So yes, while David was the only one that had his key, clearly Robin had access to the rifle because he had empty shells from shooting it. Yeah. Unless David put them there later. From the time that he got home from his paper route to the time that he called 111, that wouldn't have happened. Mm. He would have had to have been like a massive level of premeditation for that. Another piece of evidence that has people going, hmm. Remember how I said that David got home from his paper route at 642? The family computer was turned on at 644. Two minutes after... David said he got home from his paper route. Ooh. So, in order for his father to have done that, uh, he would have had to have been alive when David got home. So he would have heard something. Even though it had a silencer, he would have heard something. You think he would have heard something if he was in the shower? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, legally blonde. But with the silencer and he was in the shower, you think he would have heard something? 
based on the timeline? I don't know. Because his dad would normally come into the house at 7. Like, that was his father's normal daily routine. 7 a.m., come into the house. Well, obviously, he was off his normal routine. How? I'm sorry. He got home at 6.42. Mm-hmm. The computer was turned on at 6.44. His father usually comes to the house at 7. But his father would be dead by now. If his father did it and not David. But if David did it... He waited until 7. Yeah. Okay. Because they say that he killed all of his family, washed his clothes, took a shower, went on his paper route, came back, fired up the computer... Waited on his dad, killed his dad. And he called 111 at 7.09. So if his dad came home at 7, he could, in theory, kill him and still have time to do whatever he had to do and call 111 at 7.09. Do you think his, his dad's body would still be warm by the time they got there if he was killed? Like, I don't know. Okay, on May 29th of 1995, David went to trial. The trial lasted three weeks, and he was convicted of five counts of murder. Mm. He was sentenced to a life in prison with possibility of parole after 16 years. For killing five fucking people. Wow. And he was an adult. Right. Even though I don't think he did it. Well, that's not the end of the story. Okay, David maintained his innocence the whole time. At this point, picture Stephen Avery, like, half the people think he did it, half the people think he didn't do it. He's still doing all the appeals to get his conviction overturned. Well, David Bain is no different. He has a huge following of people who support him and believe that he's innocent, but he has the same following of people who think that he got what he deserved because he murdered his entire family. Appeal after appeal after appeal. In 2006, the Privy Council agreed to hear David's appeal. This hearing took place in March of 2007, and after five days, the Privy Council vacated his conviction. Oh, damn. But of course, but of course, it's not over because they can still try him again. Which they did. Who is this, Curtis Flowers? (laughs) Okay, so here's a few things that some made it into the trial, some didn't. But here's kind of the hot button issues that the Privy Council identified as part of the reason they vacated the conviction. Ooh, I want to hear them. A lot of people said that Robin Bain was, quote, quite seriously disturbed. And the jury in David Bain's first case never heard that. So, Robin was, like, principal at this really big school, and he ended up losing his job because he hit a student. Er, what? Yeah. Another reason why he lost his job, because in the school's newsletter, he published a supposedly children's story, but it was about a family's murder. Oh. Yeah. Foreshadowing the foreskin. Maybe. Mm. The other we talked about a little bit was Lynette, who was there to allegedly confront her parents and say, this is not right. Like, 
he has been having this incestuous, I, I, I don't even want to say incestuous relationship because it's not fucking consensual. This not, that fucking rape. Like I was almost said non-consensual sex, but that's rape. Let's not fucking church it up. It's rape. Well, in the first trial, it was ruled inadmissible because the person that the defense like had as the witness for that was very unreliable. You know, it was just a poor witness and basically it was thrown out as hearsay. But really, there were four people that supported this witness saying, no, no, she told me this too. On the flip side of that, though, I do want to mention that Lynette had actually lived with him for a little while when he was at this new school that was farther away. So because Robin had lost that job when he published all the shit and hit the kid, that's why he was working at this like 30 kids school way far away why he was having to like live there and during the week and all that was because he basically had to take this huge demotion to keep a job. Yeah. But it said that Lynette didn't live with him alone. And that was part of like her coming back was to be like, no, this can't like, this can't happen anymore. And you also can't fault or even try to say, Oh, well she shouldn't have done this or she wouldn't have done that because you can't put yourself in that position and you don't know what she went through. And I mean, what she could have been forced to move with him. She could have, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't know. And we also can't understand the psychological trauma and impact and the torture that must come along with your father is raping you, but he's your father. He's supposed to love you. So you're going to go live with him, but also he's right. Ra- you know what I mean? Like yeah. you can't, that's not fair. Right. Totally agree. Another part of the trial was bloody sock prints. Okay, there were literally sock prints, no shoe prints, but sock prints. Who are they, me? But going from Margaret's room, in and out of Lynette's room, and down the hallway outside of Margaret's room. The sock prints were all from the same foot, and allegedly they measured 280 millimeters in length. In the first trial, the jury was told these have to be David's sock prints because Robin's feet are 270 millimeters and David's are 300. And so it's like the sock print was kind of an in-between. But here's the thing, though. The jury wasn't told how big Robin's feet are. So they didn't know, okay, it measured 280, Robin's are 270, and David's are 300. But it also, it's this in-between. Like, I can see how someone's sock print would look bigger if they slid a little. Or I can also see how someone's sock print would look smaller if they were running or walking quickly or whatever, you know. So it's like, that's such a weird in-between number that I feel like it almost is impossible to know whose it is. Yeah. Okay. Remember how I told you that David got home at 642 and the computer was turned on at 644? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this is how they recorded the time of the computer. This computer guy, he, quote, figured out what time the computer was on by identifying how long it had been going and the current time on his watch. Mm. So the watch had no second hand and basically was in like five minute intervals without the little notches, right? Okay. 
So, I mean, when they looked at it, they were like, oh, shit. Actually, the computer was turned on at 6.33 and 49 seconds a.m. So, was it really, like, there's no, the minutes just don't, it, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's like, yeah, okay, well, did he really get home at 6.42? Because someone said that they had seen him passing by when they looked down at their clock they like registered a time well through further investigation they realized oh well this person's clock is actually five minutes fast Mm. but here's the thing that person is like me and yeah my clock's five minutes fast but uh i know it's five minutes fast it's so i don't get to work late you know what i mean so they knew their clock was five minutes fast, so they know what actual time it was. You know what I mean? So it's just one of those things where it's like there's no clear answer on the actual times. Did the computer turn on at 6.39 or did it come in on at 6.44? Did she really see him at 6.42 or was it really 6.46? You know what I mean? There's no clear answer with the time because of human error, basically. Yeah. There was a lot of discussion in the first trial about whose glasses they were because they found the lens, you know, in Stephen's room. And it was like kind of under some stuff. But a really kind of bone of contention between the prosecution and the defense was where the lens was found. The prosecution says that the lens was out in the open. It clearly popped out during the struggle. But the defense says, no, 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 no. It was under a skate boot, under a jacket, and it had dust on it. Oh, wow. So, you know, their house was, I mean, in disarray. It was very dirty. It had, I mean, y'all have heard our stories talking about these nasty houses. So it's literally the same of all the nasty houses we've ever talked about on this show with the maggots and all that you know what I mean like it's I'm not going to go into more detail because this is already a long enough story and you get the point the house was nasty it said that even the banes sometimes would smell and all of that so it's like it's not really out of the realm of possibility that one of the lenses would have popped out and would have just stayed in the room you know at the trial they said that David's fingerprints were found on the rifle it's his rifle though right right but there was blood like, with the fingerprints, mm. they didn't test it immediately. They just assumed it was human blood. Because there were other spots of human blood on the rifle. But the f- fingerprint blood was actually animal. Wow. Right. Wow. Next, we have Lynette's gurgling. Remember how I said mm-hmm. all that? Okay. So, basically... In regards to Lynette's gurgling noise, they said that, you know, only people who are in like literally dying right then make the gurgling noise. So David would have had to have been the one to have killed her if he heard her gurgling. Something said that people only gurgle after they're dead if they're moved, you know, all these things. But the part of that that the Privy Council addressed was that the Court of Appeals had kind of fucked up about that information. Like, the second court of appeal said, okay, it's not really clear-cut, so meh. And then the third court of appeals stepped out of 
their reviewing role. And so the Privy Council was like, okay, the first one, you made a decision that you shouldn't have made. The second one, you went over and beyond when you should not have. So not in a good way. Yeah. And they also exceeded their role, as they say, by deciding, like, what was new evidence and what wasn't. I know that's kind of, it's. this is a lot of, like, legal mumbo-jumbo. This story is so big, like, I can't, I can't even. Basically, the third court of appeals was basically like, he's guilty because he knew where the key was to the rifle. The bloody rifle had his bloody fingerprint on it. And the spare magazine to the rifle was, again, sitting, like, up, upright. It was, like, standing on its narrow side instead of, like, laying flat. Mm. The white gloves we talked about earlier had blood on them. David Shorts had Stephen's blood on them. The washing machine. And Robin had a full bladder. And so what they were saying was Robin came in to the house to go to the bathroom to say his prayers. And when all that, like before all that could happen, David killed him. I feel like if you are planning on annihilating your family, peeing might not be on your mind. I mean... You are a different story. I get a nervous bladder for a reason. (laughs) Another thing worth mentioning is that there's a 25-minute gap between, again, David coming home from his paper route and when he called police. And... According to David, he doesn't remember this. Like, he doesn't remember what happened. He says he feels like maybe he had a bit of a seizure. And when police and EMS arrived, David was in the fetal position, like, bawling, crying. And then he started convulsing. But the first responders testified, basically, he was faking it. Mm. Because they said, I thought this was so interesting. That when someone is truly unconscious, that if you rub your finger along their eyelashes, someone who's not unconscious, will their eyes will twitch uncontrollably. They can't stop it. Their eyes will twitch. And someone who's truly had some sort of episode, seizure-like episode that made them unconscious, their eye would do nothing. Well, his eye fluttered when they did that to him. The other thing that they said that led them to believe that he was faking it was that he had like rhythmic and symmetrical movements that were very similar to, again, someone faking a seizure-like movement. But he could have just been having like a really bad panic attack. People have do that with really bad panic attacks? I don't know. Does everyone pass out with seizures? He was saying that he passed out, though. Like, he was pretending to be passed out. Like, hey, hey, are you okay? And he's not responding because he's allegedly passed out. Mm, I'm still Team David, and I'm like... uh, Of course you are. You're also Team Joe Exotic. Don't even get started on it. I'm just saying. I don't know why you had to bring it up. I'm just saying. A fucking course you are. You know why? Because Carol fucking Baskins is on Dancing with the Stars. That's why she had to bring it up. Like, literally, Donna is always on the side of the person that nobody the fuck else is. Uh, yes, there are. They have a website, and I'm going to join it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just saying that not everyone is the same. And, like, 
I feel like if you found your family all like that, even if you did it and then you're freaking out, like you can have a different response. But if you are, okay, so let's say that it wasn't a seizure, even though that's what he was pretending it was, because he said that he had been having seizure-like episodes before. Like it was like almost like he was setting up this of disappearance so let's just say it really was a seizure or it really was a panic attack for him to be in a catatonic slash unconscious state his body could not have made the responses that it made to their testing period it doesn't matter what whether it was a seizure whether it was a panic attack whether it was any of that if he was truly unconscious which he says he was, he would not have physically been able to make those responses. Yeah, I still just, I feel like he... No, I'm, I'm a boarding no, mission. You I'm, cannot argue this. He was faking that no matter what. Okay, I'm just saying maybe he did think he passed out, but he didn't. My nanny has done that several times. Okay, well, you cannot compare those two. I, you never know. You don't know, David. Keep going. Additionally, these first responders had a lot of their like medical background was in psychiatric facilities. Well, isn't that just handy? Well, they, he can't help who was called to the scene. Mm-hmm. So they were able to draw on their expertise, which is the whole point of an expert witness, to say... How he presented was very similar to how people in their past with patients in the psychiatric units would fake seizures or whatever. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying expert witnesses on both sides are going to say what you want them to say. There was no expert witness to really say that he was having some sort of seizure. I'm just saying. Because he didn't. Another thing that came out after his acquittal is that there was this young woman who David would see very often when he was on his paper route. And he had a very intense rape fantasy with this girl. Did he write about it? Yes. Okay. But it's also like, why does this matter? Because nobody was raped in in these murders. But also, it kind of speaks to his frame of mind. And, you know, another issue was the length of the rifle. So, Robin was right-handed. He was shot in the left side of his head. And the rifle is not only a long-ass fucking rifle, it also had a silencer on it that made it that much longer. So, the prosecution is like, um... How in the fuck would he be able to shoot himself from that distance? And the blood spatter and, well, this is disgusting, but the brain matter that was on the curtain next to him, the trajectory was it falling. So, like, how he would have been shot, the brain matter could not have, like, if he shot himself, there's no way it could have splattered that way. Mm. What if... David came in, found that his dad had killed everyone, and then he killed his dad. There was also a smut. I'm not even, I'm not even, 
No, no, no. There was also a smudge of Stephen's blood on the curtain. So, again, that could prove either one of them did it. Because, yeah, if Robin had Stephen's blood on him, he would get it on the curtain. But David did have Stephen's blood on him, so he could have gotten it on the curtain, too. Additionally, the blood spatter and like point of entry of the bullet was indicative of the rifle being held, I think it was like 35 centimeters away from his skull. So not only would he have had to shoot a long-ass rifle with a silencer 35 centimeters from his head, it fall with the magazine upright on its like narrowest edge and him to fall backwards instead of forwards it doesn't make sense because of where he was hit in his brain it's an instant kill and when people are instantly killed like that they fall forward no matter what every they show time? every time no matter what they show on tv they fall forward not backwards i'll take you at your expert witness opinion what if he had it with its toe on the trigger and killed himself that way how would he have balanced it and how would he not how would his fingerprints not be on the rifle when the gloves were found in another room so he killed everybody with the gloves on took the gloves off shot himself with the rifle and then still wiped his fingerprints off but then cuz there were smear marks of the blood so it had been wiped mm. but david's prints were still there yes they were an animal thing but his prints were still there when the gun had been wiped so, how? I don't know. And the look, the blood in the washing machine, I mean, could that be any more Jody Arias? So, could they tell whose blood or anything? I don't know that answer. Because uh, you make yourself bleed all the freaking time. So, if David is anything like you on his paper route, he randomly did whatever and he had blood on him. And he had to wash his clothes. Because he had blood. You can't rebuttal that because you do bleed randomly. We have it on a thank you video. <laughs> Legitimately, just a second ago, we took a bathroom break. I, I scratched my leg and it started bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> I rest my case. You're not wrong. <laughs> good day, sir. <laughs> I said good day. <laughs> Damn it, I wanted you to say it something so I could say that. <laughs> Okay, after they vacated the verdict, David was retried. He had spent 13 years of the 16 years before his parole in prison. The second trial lasted three months. The prosecution called 130 witnesses. Oh my God. And the defense called 54. I've kind of seen some different numbers of how long the jury deliberated, but it was like a day. And they found him not guilty. Oh. Can you believe it? Yes, I can. Oh, no, we can't. <laughs> can you believe it? Uh, I've been saying he's fucking innocent this whole time. And when- but are you surprised by the, by the verdict, though? Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, after the verdict was read, one of the jurors goes and hugs David. Another's, like, shaking his hand. And it comes out that they had all been invited to this party after. 
and that a lot of them actually like knew about the case when they said they didn't. But an acquittal's an acquittal, and he's free. He tried to get compensation for his 13 years spent in prison, but basically they said, absolutely not, because you weren't proven innocent. Yeah. You were just found not guilty. Yeah. And so they were like, "Mm -mm. no, you can't have it. But he was like, look, you basically took my inheritance away because he was going to inherit the house and the land and all of that. And then they burned the house down like on purpose because it was so dilapidated and nobody's going to buy that and all the things. So he's like, you took my inheritance away, you know, all of the things. So he ended up getting like $900,000 if he said, okay, I'm not going to seek any more money. And now he's married and has like two kids. He married a girl whose father was one of his biggest supporters. Wow. Yep. And they've got two kids and uh, he's living his fucking best life. As he should, because he didn't kill his family. Okay. That is a huge fucking story that we could do. Hey, what's the podcast called? Oh, yeah. The podcast is called Black Hands, A Family Mass Murder. It's called Black Hands because when police first got there and he was like, they're dead, they're all dead. He told them that he kept seeing these black hands like coming for him, basically. Which... My thinking is kind of interesting considering his mom with the devil and saying that, you know what I mean? Like, it's just very interesting. I don't know how it is related, but it's very interesting. Now, I will say this is apparently a pretty big podcast. I don't know how we missed the boat on this, but I did find a really good article that like countered all the points from that podcast I don't want to say the podcast is biased because I, I don't know. Like, I don't, I just don't know enough about it to say it's biased or the people who wrote it. But I will say that there are other people who believe that it's completely false. So I am team uh, David did it, allegedly. And Donna is team David didn't do it. Yes. And if y'all, I know we have listeners in New Zealand. So if y'all have any like personal experiences with this story or I remember when kind of thing send this in as a sinister sightings because I want to know like I feel like this is almost like they the second trial was almost like the OJ like people were either like yes or people were like what the fuck yeah okay so hopefully your story doesn't get as heated mine never does other than when you're saying aliens don't exist and shit like that or like uh men in black I'm just saying Well, after that wild ride of a story, we're going across the pond. Yes. To a small village named Borley in Essex, England. And when I say small, I mean small, like 120 people. Oh, that's small. (laughs) I don't don't know. I was saying ooh and damn and I, okay. I'm covering a place that is touted as the most haunted house in England. And it's none other than the Borley Rectory. There's thought to be a Benedictine monastery on this site before the church and another rectory was built. This was supposedly in 1362. And, well, there's a scandal that will be important. You see, a monk from that monastery met a nun from a nearby convent, and they fell in love. Whoa. Yeah, and so they had a friend who was going to help them escape so they could live there happily ever after, but they were caught. 
Wait, why do they have to escape? Why can't they just be like, I'm out? I don't know. This was like 1362. Well, the friend was driving a coach for them, and he was beheaded. (gasps) The monk was executed, and the nun was bricked up alive in the underground vault slash cellar of the monastery. She definitely got the worst punishment. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? Well, this rectory was constructed in 1863 on the site of the previous but now dilapidated rectory near the Borley Church. And this church dates back to the 12th century. The rectory was built for Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull. And (laughs) I don't know why I write this kind of shit, but I'm going to say it. I wrote... And his wife must have loved to ride him like a bull because his rectory had to be expanded to accommodate all of their 14 children. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, you're not wrong. (laughs) You're wrong for saying it, but the content (laughs) is true. (laughs) And this rectory was huge. When it was first built, it had 18 rooms. But... They had to add a whole wing for more kids. It had 18 rooms. Why did it need more? That's literally every kid getting its own room. Well, some of those, they count like the living room, the kitchen. That's counted as a room. Oh, well, that makes sense then. (laughs) Make those motherfuckers bunk up together. I always thought of a rectory as being like a one room kind of thing attached to the church. Mm -hmm. Well, I think... This, because you said he's a reverend, right? Mm-hmm. So if he was a priest, like a like a Catholic, true Catholic priest, that has taken like a vow of poverty and all of that, they're not married, they don't have kids, and again, vow of poverty, so it would just be like a one-room thing. But mm-hmm. this is like a reverend that's married, got kids. True, true, true. Well, and he came from kind of a well-to-do family. Like his family had been in this area for like over 300 years, you know, The Bulls had it. Well, along with 14 children, they had a lot of ghosts. The most well-known ghost at the Borley Rectory is a ghost nun. And she's often seen walking down the path leading to the gazebo near the end of the property. And later I'll touch on this, but it's called the Nun's Walk. They say at least 17 different people have seen this nun. Sometimes when the Bull family were eating, they noticed a nun staring at them, but she appeared to be sad. But she was staring at them through a window. And they usually like would look at the window because there would be a drop of temperature inside. The nun always disappeared within seconds before anyone could go outside to see, like, hey, are you okay? Whatever, she'd disappear. This happened so often that Henry Bull had the window bricked up. Holy shit. Yeah, because it was so unnerving to them to see, like... This figure? Yeah. One day, two of the Bull daughters and their nanny noticed a woman in white that was following a pair of girls in an opposite field. Well, when they met up with them, those girls were completely unaware anyone was with them because it wasn't a person. Mm. Yeah. 
So, you know, in Cinderella, how they have that bell system? Mm-hmm. Well, they had that too. And soon the servants' bells would just ring constantly. And it was so much that they ended up cutting the wires. Oh, my God. Yeah. But the ringing continued. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. One of their daughters, Ethel, she was in the house one afternoon and the bells started to ring all together. And then it was followed by the sound of gushing water. Ethel was kind of the target to a lot of this stuff. Like she heard that. She was frequently woken up at night by being slapped in the face. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. Uh-uh. She would hear like the rapping sounds on her door. Every night at 1030, they would hear heavy footsteps outside. And then they would hear three taps on their door. Never more than three. One night, Ethel was laying in her bed, and she had this man who appeared at her bedside, and she told her parents that he was just strange-looking. That was all that she could really say, you know? But obviously, he disappeared in front of her. Elizabeth Byford, she was Ethel's nanny. She left her job after just two weeks Because she kept hearing footsteps outside her door at midnight. And, like, she would, you know, open the door. No one was there. She was like, nope, mm -mm, not gonna have it. What you pay me to handle your brats and your ghost? Mm Mm-mm. You don't pay me enough to handle your hellions and then go to hell from your demon. Damn. And, like, most hauntings... Items were found moved from one place to another, but unlike most hauntings, this one has a phantom horse-drawn carriage, and uh, the driver is headless. So that goes along with the whole monk-nun story. A guy named Shaw Jeffrey visited the house in 1885, and he claimed to have seen stones being thrown by someone he couldn't see. One of Henry Bull's son, Walter, he was away a lot. He spent a lot of his time at sea, so he wasn't there to see everything. But he stated that when he did stay there, he heard footsteps, and they weren't just, oh, I hear distant footsteps. They followed him. And so he would try to, like, lose the person he thought was following him, By, like, slipping behind a tree, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm going to catch him. But he never saw anyone. There was no one there. Yeah. And where he would hear these footsteps, it was in this certain path. And neighbors and stuff like that, they would use that path too, but they would not do it after dark. They would not pass that house after dark if they were alone. Reverend Bull died at the age of 59 from illness in the rectory's blue room, which was the main bedroom, in 1892. The rectory still stayed in the Bull family because his son, Henry Jr., who went by Harry, took over. The sightings continued, but Harry, he enjoyed them. You know, he he was all about it. He even built... A little, they say a summer house, 
but it was just like a smaller cottage that had a clear view of that nun's walk, that path. So he could look out and he would sit there all the time just waiting to see the nun walking. I mean, he was probably a little obsessed. Mm, Sounds like it. And if he grew up with it, though, like, it wouldn't be as, like, bizarre for him, you know? Yeah. He, hell, he probably found comfort in it if he had, you know? Yeah. One day, he was in the garden with his dog, and he saw a pair of legs behind the trees. But when the legs moved, and he saw the full body, uh, it was headless. Oh, that's not who he was looking for. Mm-mm. He also saw the carriage with the horses and that headless coachman several times. And here's something to note. When the coach was seen, it was silent. But when it was heard, it was invisible. Hmm. That sounds like a fucking riddle. (laughs) Right. You can see me, but you can't hear me. You can hear me, but you can't see me. Right. What am I? (laughs) A lot of the townspeople would hear... The horses galloping and stuff, too. It wasn't just this family. Then in 1900, Ethel, the daughter, and her sister, Frida, they arrived home from a summer garden party, which sounds so fancy. Right. And they saw something that looked like the nun, and they were like, "Mm, okay, let's go get our sister Elsie. Because they were freaking out because they had seen the nun before, but it was always like at dusk or later, and this was in broad daylight. And so it was like a new thing for them, and so they were so excited. All four of them just watched as the nun slowly walked across the lawn. Well, then they started to try to greet her, but she disappeared. There's some witnesses that have said they've seen the nun and the monk walking together, which is sweet. There was this one time where Fred Cartwright, he was one of those traveling handymans, he kept walking by the property when he was doing his stops and stuff. Well, he saw the nun four times, but he thought it was a real-life person. But on the fourth appearance, he was, you know, looking at her like, God, Every time I see her standing here, she disappeared in front of him. You know that his butthole clenched. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, then, in 1927, Harry died in the blue room just like his father had. Hmm. I don't know when, but the mom also died in the blue room. Well, after this, the Borley Rectory remained vacant for several months. And it was vacant because it took the church a while to find someone who would accept the role and live in the rectory. Too many people knew the rumors. But, as luck would have it, a man named Reverend Eric Smith and his wife had just returned home from missionary work in India, where they had been for several years. So they didn't know the lowdown on the rectory. So they accepted. The church had went through 12 different people before he actually accepted. Well, the first thing they noticed were noises in the bedrooms at night. They heard the thuds. There was knocking on the doors. There was thuds, like heavy objects being thrown, furniture being moved, that kind of stuff. And it was loud enough to wake them up. So they thought, oh, okay, something's just going on in this bedroom. 
So they would change to another bedroom, but the sounds would continue. And so they're like, mm, either these sounds are happening in the bedrooms all together at the same time, or like it's not of this world. Right. And to note, the noises were loudest and most commonly heard in the bedroom over the kitchen and in the blue room. Hmm. One day, the wife was cleaning the house, and she found a box on a bookshelf. Well, in this box, it had a human skull. Um, what? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah. And it says that it was identified as female. I don't know how, because I don't know. But Eric Smith, her husband, buried the skull and did a short ceremony to honor it. But over the months of their residency, he knew that that had not helped the situation at all. In the library, there were French windows and they had really heavy wood shutters. And they were like pocket doors almost. Well... Several times, those shutters would be banged together, but those were, like, really heavy and hard to move. Yeah. One time, it happened when they were in this room. It said that the shutters were, like, six feet high and three feet wide. One time in the house, Eric Smith heard some mumbling voices. He said it sounded like a whisper of two people. It was louder but he still couldn't understand a a lot but it increased the closer he got to the blue room when he got really close he heard a woman cry out no carlos don't Hmm. but they couldn't find anything about a carlos tied to this or the town the bell ringing started with them too and again wires were cut His wife had seen what she said was a gray, wispy figure that leaned against the gate. But when you tried to approach it, it would vanish. Some household objects were smashed. Like one time they were in the drawing room. They were alone in the house. And suddenly they heard like a clattering. And so they ran out into the hall. And they found pieces of a china vase that normally stood on the mantle in their bedroom, which was the blue room. Mm-hmm. But somehow that means it moved from that shelf, like from the mantle, traveled out of the room, across the hall, and then shattered on the floor. Like, Unlikely. that's a lot. Yeah. And remember that coach? A servant saw the coach speeding past the rectory twice. Well, they were like, what do we do? This is so weird. And in 1928, Eric Smith and his wife contacted the Daily Mirror newspaper and kind of reported what was going on and was like, hey, can we be put in touch with the Society for Psychical Research? Well, they were like, okay. A reporter went to the house along with a Famous paranormal investigator, Harry Price. And almost as soon as Harry Price arrived, new hauntings occurred. There was this one mirror frame that they said there was certain tapping, but it was seemed to be a message. 
keys would fly out of the locks of the doors just randomly. And then items that had went missing would randomly just fall from the ceiling. And then there was, again, something that just appeared. And it was a coat, but it seemed to be like from a previous century. And it appeared on the back of a door in front of the investigators. Like, that wasn't there. Yeah. However, most of these new issues went away as soon as Harry Price left. So Eric Smith's wife, she was like, "Mm, he might be faking all of this. So I don't know how he'd really be doing that. But like, she was like, I don't know. Like, I don't don't trust it because like this never happened. And then we brought him in. However, he's a paranormal investigator. So if he's there, the spirits are going to know like, oh, yeah, he talks to us or, oh, yeah, he knows about us. You know what I mean? They're going to act up or or did he bring something with him Mm. or was he faking? Yeah. Well, footsteps, the loud thuds, the knocks, the bell ringings. It was all the time, all day, every day. That must be exhausting. It was, and they were unable to take it any longer. And the Smiths, they left on July 14th, 1929. Now, since the Borley Rectory has been in the papers and all of that, which made it tough for them to find a new pastor. Well, it took a year, but... On October 16th, 1930... <gasps> Tiffany's birthday! Right? Reverend Lionel Foister, who was the first cousin of the Bull family, moved in with his wife, Marianne, and his adopted daughter, Adelaide, who was three. I love that name. Mm-hmm. He took it mostly because the Bull family urged him to. Well, they could fucking move back in. Right? Well, the hauntings were at their height. Even Harry Price described this as the most extraordinary documented case of haunting in the annals of psychical research. Damn. Also, I mean, are we playing fucking Scrabble? Right. I mean, Harry Price, we know you're smart. Nah, we get it. Meanwhile, I had to Google three words. (laughs) Meanwhile, we had to do take two because I said extraordinary. (laughs) (laughs) Too many letters. What do I do? On the first day they arrived, the ghost greeted them. And, like, for real, for real, greeted them. Marianne heard her name being called, but no one was there. And on top of that, within the first few weeks, Marianne, she was going upstairs to the blue room. They were using it as their bedroom. She heard footsteps following her, which everyone did, you know. She turned around, and instead of seeing no one there, she saw an apparition of a man. Well, she was like, uh, okay, gotta go, and, like, kept going to the bedroom. Like, you know, like, let me just get in there, lock the door, that kind of thing. Well, when she reached for the handle of the blue room, the apparition disappeared, Well, sometime later, like weeks later, months later, she was shown a photograph of Harry Bull. And she was like, um, that was the man I saw like the first few weeks. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah. 
Harry Bull, he did appear to her on multiple occasions. And one time he was in a dressing gown. And one time he was carrying a small case or like a wallet. She never saw him in any other part of the house but by the blue room. How did he change clothes? Hell if I know. I mean, like, I feel like Ghost 101 in every movie and every everything is what they die in is what they wear. You know? <laughs> yeah. My luck, I'm going to drop dead cleaning my house. I'm going to have on a raggedy fucking t-shirt, some sort of raggedy ass shorts and fucking like socks and Crocs with my hair looking like fucking Bridget Jones Diary when she got out of the convertible. Okay, so that's every night when you change into your bed clothes. Blue top, hot pink pants. Colby's so lucky. Whoever sees you as a ghost, they're going to be like, what the fuck? What the Punky Brewster's going on here? (laughs) His apparition was only seen by her, but the footsteps and objects being moved were heard by other people, too. And there was this one time where Reverend Foister, he found two chairs that had several upright pins in them. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know that is, like, one of my biggest fears. And, by the way, you wouldn't want to be a guest because usually objects were thrown at new people. Feisty little fuckers. Mm-hmm. Also, things disappeared, too. There was this one time Marianne had gone into the bathroom to wash her hands, and she took off her watch. And so, like, it was a watch, but it was set in a gold bracelet. You know, she fancy. Right. Well, she put it on the shelf Well, she washed and dried her hands, and she turned back to pick it up, and she only found the watch. The bracelet had disappeared, and it was never found. Oh, my God. Yeah. But also, on the flip side, objects that the family had never seen before would appear out of thin air. There was this one small bag that contained only lavender, and it was found one day on the mantle in the sewing room. But it would just, like, randomly appear in different places. Like, what the hell? But that's nice because the lavender is so calming. Yeah. I'd be, like, smelling inside that fucking silk bag. Books also appeared randomly. The first one was found on the bathroom windowsill. Reverend Foister, he thought his wife had done it. Like, oh, she left her book here. Well, she thought he did it, you know? Right. Because everyone reads on the toilet. Let's just be honest. Clergymen, they're just like us. (laughs) (laughs) But then other books were found in different parts of the house. And they were all theological in nature and all over 100 years old. Later, they discovered that Reverend Henry Bull had stored a lot of his old books in like a cupboard that they had never looked in. And so that's where the books came from. So maybe he was just like, uh, you need to educate yourself. Yeah. There was one night, Reverend Foister, he left the sewing room to get some papers. And when he turned into the hall, he was shocked because all of the pictures had been taken off the walls along the staircase and laid face down with one exception. There was this really large picture but it was hanging like crooked where like it kind of seemed like eh, they tried to push it 
but they lost their strength. I was like, eh, I'll get that later. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sound familiar? Us at the end of every project? Uh-huh. Yep. We'll clean this up tomorrow. <laughs> Six weeks later. Uh-huh. We'll paint the inside of those drawers. Yeah, we will. We'll get there. Two years later, still haven't been painted. I don't know why people do this, but, like, they collected walking sticks. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but they had them in the corner of the library. Well, they seemed to move on their own. And one time, there was one, and it was witnessed to move the entire length of the room. Books and papers were moved, and even, like, Reverend Foister's sermon, like, his draft would be moved into a different room. Like, he would be freaking out while he'd find it, you know. So, he was like, you know what? I'm going to put it in this large Bible that's on his desk. He was like, maybe it'll be safe. And it was. So, he would tuck his sermons in this Bible every time. And like I mentioned before, items were thrown at the couple. Like, this one time at 11 o'clock one night, Reverend Foister was in the bathroom when he heard Marianne cry out and then heard her running down the hall. So he came running out of the, you know, barreling out of the bathroom. And she said that she'd been in the bedroom, which is the blue room, and had just come out onto the landing when something hit her in the face and stunned her. She was carrying a candle, but she couldn't see anyone or anything being thrown at her. And honestly, like, it hit so hard that it made a cut under her left eye, and there was blood running down her face. Damn. Yeah. She was also thrown out of bed several times. Also, Marianne one time saw this medicine bottle leave the mantle, float through the air, and then land on the floor beside the bed. That sounds like something I would do, only it's because I dropped it. Mm Mm-hmm. And it went flying. That's something, like, I want the force to be with me so I can get my medicine bottle without having to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. Can't we just find a Merlin? Right. There was this mirror standing on Marianne's dressing table, and there was this tapping sound that would happen anytime she approached it. But the tapping appeared to come from the back. Yeah. So, they also invited Harry Price and his little group to come back and, you know, all the things. Well, they brought two wine bottles as presents. They had the wine and glasses. You know, they were all, like, just talking. Well, the wine turned into ink and perfume mm-hmm, in the glasses. Okay. Yeah. The windows of their house started to shatter randomly, and their daughter, who's young... She was locked in a room without a key. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, because, like, their keys would just, like, randomly fly out of the locks and stuff. So, kind of like the nun that was buried, or, like, in the room. Ooh, walled up. Yes. Well, everything kind of came to a head when there started to be writing. (laughs) The writing on the wall, (laughs) but, like, literally. And it said, Marianne, please get help. And then later it said, get light mass prayers. But it was just like, really? It was on the verge of being illegible, Mm -hmm. you know? But also it seemed to be, again, like the first 
few letters really good. And then it's like they got weaker and weaker and weaker and just kind of would like taper off. So I don't know. But Marianne would write back to it like, I don't understand. You know, like we can't. What are you saying? We need subtitles. And what Harry Price said was that this was, you know, a conversation between that nun and Marianne because he said it was feminine and, you know, caring, which females are. Who knows? I don't know. That's what he said. Well, that's very... Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Men can be caring. Yep. Women can be not so caring. I mean, look at Donna over there. I was going to say, i.e. carry. Uh, Beach to it. Over the five years that they lived in the rectory, they had over 2,000 cases of things going bump in the night, in the day, all the things. Him being a reverend, he attempted to exercise the house twice. Only made things worse. Didn't do anything. You know what I mean? Like, he was just... Well, at least he didn't make things worse. Yeah. In October 1935, he developed arthritis, and it became crippling. And so they left. Well, after all of this, the church was like, "Mm, let's just put the rectory up for sale. It's too hard to find someone. They can just live in the village. You know, like, it's just too much. But while it sat on the market, Harry Price was able to rent the house. And so, on May 2nd, 1939, he placed an ad in the Times, and it read, Haunted House, Responsible Persons of Leisure and Intelligence, Intrepid, Critical, and Unbiased, are invited to join ROTA of Observers in a year's day and night investigation of an alleged house. Well, around 50 observers were gathered together in this house, And they had an investigation, a years-long investigation. This was like the original haunting of Hill House, like where he had, well, I think the movie was called The Haunting, where Liam Neeson, he has them like come in and he does research on them. Catherine Zeta-Jones is in it, all the things, but anyway. But during this year-long investigation, a woman named Helen Glanville She had a seance with Harry Price and, you know, other people. And she made contact with two spirits. One was a young nun, and her name was Marie Lair. And she was from France. She said that she left her convent in France to marry a man named Henry Walgrave. And that is the name of... A really wealthy family. And that family had the rectory land before the rectory was built there and stuff. Yeah. So, like, I mean, it makes sense. So, they lived close to where the rectory stood. Well, according to Marie, her husband strangled her and buried her in the cellar. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, the other spirit was a man and called himself Sunix Amures? Question mark, question mark. But he was kind of threatening and he said that he would burn the rectory down that night and the bones of a murdered person would be uncovered. Oh my God. But he didn't. Okay. Well, the time came. Price's lease was up. 
So an architect named William Gregson bought the property to turn it into a tourist attraction because the hauntings had gotten so popular and he just had it for a year. Harry Price had it for a year doing this whole huge thing, you know? So he's like, yes, you, I will build it. They will come. <laughs> the strange shit still happened. Doors that were left locked were unlocked and vice versa. And then there was like this large cover that was placed over a well in the cellar and it was just like tossed aside. But it's like one of those that not just one person can move. But then exactly 11 months to the day on February 27th, 1939, William Gregson knocked over an oil lamp in the hallway and it lit everything on fire and it became too big too fast so he called the local fire brigade but by the time they arrived the house had already been basically destroyed the upstairs was damaged and most of the rooms on the ground floor were damaged well the thing about this fire other than you know like it ruining the rectory One of the policemen who was there, he questioned Gregson about the men and women in cloaks that he saw leaving the house as it was burning. And Gregson was like, I was the only person in there. No one else was in there. Yeah. But if you think about it in cloaks, kind of sounds like a monk, kind of sounds like a nun. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, a woman from Borley Lodge, which was nearby, she claims that she saw a figure of a nun at the window of the rectory when the fire occurred. But where she said she saw it, that floor had already been destroyed by the fire, so no person could have been up there. In 1943, Harry Price excavated the rectory and found a couple of bones, and he said that it belonged to a young woman. I don't know if he was just trying to make everything piece together for that seance, but the fire did happen and bones were unearthed. Then in 1944, the remains of the rectory, they were so, it was in shambles. So they were like, "Mm -mm, we have to demolish it. Well, a life photographer was there to cover the event because It had been in the news so much. I mean, you know, they would want to know the destruction of it. Yeah. Well, he he has this one photograph, and it's a brick that rose up from the ground and floated in the air for several seconds. So he caught some of the last activity while it was still upright. Wow. Then in the 1960s, flashlights and car lights they would all fail around where the rectory was then in 2000 during a paranormal investigation there were footsteps that were captured the creaking of a door that you know no longer exists and they heard like a deep sigh as an evp that was all captured essex ghost hunters They said that the Borley Rectory is their favorite location to visit, and they've visited it several times, and every time they do, something has happened. 
They've had stones hit cars, orbs, and they've even seen shadows that they can't explain. And, you know, different things like that. But okay, here it comes, Carrie. It was confirmed in 1938 that the legend of the monk and the nun had no historical basis and seemed to be made up by, like, the Bull family. So, like, all of that is fake. And the whole walling up the nun, it was probably taken from a novel by Ryder Haggard, which was really popular at the time. And it had that as a punishment. And three members of Harry Price's team investigated his work after his death in 1948. And they came to the conclusion that he faked most of the paranormal phenomena. What? Yeah. And a lot of Henry Bull's kids, they said that they, like, didn't see everything. But that was most of the older kids. The younger kids said, like, no, we did see all of this stuff. So, older kids weren't there all the time, and we know younger kids are more, like, open-minded and can see different things. But can also be more easily manipulated than older kids. Very true. And then the Foisters. It came out that Marianne, she admitted to having an affair, and she faked some of the activity to cover it up. <gasps> this is just like the perfect fucking storm. Right? So I want to be like, mm, Marianne, do you like rough sex? Like, is that what this is about? Or like, was he like sneaking out and you're faking some of this shit? Right. Just to like divert attention? Yeah. She said that she thought Eric, her husband, had like been in cahoots with Harry Price and made up some of the other stuff or like had it, you know, like, Ooh, if we do this, it'll look like this, you know. But it's like, bitch, you were the one who was faking it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying because they said Harry faked some of his shit too. But I'm just saying, like, don't put your sins off on me. And by sins, I mean the faking of the paranormal activity. But she did say that she couldn't explain everything away that happened over that five years. So she's like... I mean, it could, like, it's probably haunted. It's really probably haunted, just not to the level. Well, and, I mean, they said that other people saw, like, the nun and stuff, so. Yeah. And then there's this man named Louis Mayerling, and he published a book in 2000 called We Faked the Ghost of Borley Rectory. And he said that he stayed there in 1918, and he saw Harry Bull, like, talking to the locals and, really playing up the paranormal activity and everything. But Lewis said that even, because there was this one thing that they said, there was this piano, and they were like, it's invisible hands playing this piano. Well, Lewis Mayerling said, no, it was like a kid underneath that would like strum a chord with like a hook kind of thing, you know? So, mm, I don't know. Well, and I mean, in the 1920s, and before is when the, like, self-playing piano things were a thing. Mm. So, I mean, it could even have been that. Well, Lewis also said that the Foisters, they were really struggling to make ends meet. And so they were like, hmm, 
if we ride this ghost tail, we might be able to make some more money. Mm-hmm. He said that they had him, he was a teenager at this time, they had him walk the gardens at dusk and had a black cape, and that was to, like, be like, ooh, the headless monk, you know? Right. So, I don't know. But there was one mystery that Lewis was like, you know what? I can't reason this away. I can't tell you that I faked it. But it was in 1935 at Easter, and there was a seance being held in the cellar at midnight. And just as they got settled down, the kitchen bells were, you know, like, clinging together and everything. And they all knew it was impossible because the cords had been cut. And then right after that sound, there was like this lightning of silver blue light, which was like bouncing from the wall to the ceiling. And Lewis said, quote, I can't explain that occurrence. And to be honest, it still makes me feel rather shaken. Hmm. And that is Borley Rectory. So kind of like your story, there's two sides. There's the people who were like, no, 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 this is the most haunted house in England and all of this happened. And then there's people who were like, no, 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 this is faked. This is, you know, like whatever. However, a lot of this, you could be like, you can't trust this guy because all of those other people are dead. You True. know, he can do whatever he wants to. Yeah. So he could be making money saying, ooh, I'm going to ride the ghost tale. I don't know why I'm saying that of this, you know, and whatever. I'm not saying he's lying. I'm just saying he could be. Allegedly could be. Mm-hmm. And if she was having an affair, maybe the activity was more like up because it was an emotional distressed time, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, y'all got some decisions to make. Did David do it? Did Robin do it? Is the rectory haunted? Is it not haunted? We want to know what y'all think. Yes. I guess we know you think David didn't do it. I think he did. Do you think it's haunted? Mm, I think it's haunted, but not to the extent of all of the things. Yeah. Yeah, I think it started somewhere with, like... The consistency of the stories, but they definitely were very much embellished and took on a new life. Yeah. But also, you know, there's a thing called, like, the tulpa, which I need to do a whole episode on, but where it's, like, Slender Man, where it's fake, but can it be brought into life if enough people believe in it and all of that? And Yeah, you definitely should. And so, it could that be this? You know, there's so much... Around this, like, could it now be more haunted because of that? Beats the hell out of me. (laughs) Well, for real, we want to know what y'all think. So let us know. Thanks for such a warm welcome back. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.